The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. What are the most successful change leaders of today doing to deliver great results? Welcome to Inside Transformational Leadership with your host, Kate Ebner. Our program is produced by the Institute for Transformational Leadership at Georgetown University. We'll explore the inner game of transformational leadership, sharing insights from renowned leaders and faculty from our world-class leadership and coaching programs. Now, from Georgetown University, here is Kate Ebner. Good morning and welcome to today's show. It is with a great pleasure that I introduce our guest today, Alexander Kaye. Alexander has worked for far more than 20 years, almost 30 years, I believe, with executives, leaders, teams, managers around the world. He's known for bringing both rigor and human understanding and a whole lot of fun to his work with executive teams. Um, He brings many different disciplines into his work and has been the creator of original ideas and thinking and practices for helping teams to be better together. Um, recently, Alexander has founded Corentis, which is a, a leadership consultancy that's a, um, we're going to talk a little bit today about what Alexander's doing with his business, but our focus is really helping you learn about how you can improve the experience you're having with the teams that you might be a part of or also teams you might be responsible for. So we'll say more um, in a moment about you, Alexander, but welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks, Kate. Well, you know, as we um, were planning this show, uh, I really gave a lot of thought to how to use our hour the best, Alex, because I know that you have so much to share and that um, many people are interested in this topic. In fact, the topic of team effectiveness is considered one of the top five trends in human resources research right now in terms of what companies need. So I think we have a very, very timely topic. I'd love to start today by just giving people a, a sense of who you are and a, how you got interested in this work. So why don't we start there, Alexander? Um, could you tell us a little bit about your background and how you came to be an expert on team dynamics? Thanks. So the, the, the personal side of that question is I was born and raised in, in France, came over to the United States when I was younger and went back and forth quite a bit. So a very nomadic existence. And it's important because in that nomadic existence, I was very solitary, very much individual. Went to University of Michigan undergrad, Columbia uh, Master's in Organizational Psychology, and found myself in a consulting firm where I was brought in as that organizational psychologist doing some pretty important consulting work and always working with teams client teams of all shapes and sizes, sponsor teams, change teams, executive teams. And I noticed almost consistently that these teams were not operating at their optimum. There were issues of effectiveness and performance and relationship, and I was surprised to see that there was very little to help them outside of some basic team training 
or some team building events. And that was coupled with, now I go back to what I originally said about being nomadic, that as I entered this consulting firm in the early days, and I was in my 30s at the time, I was being, I was being given feedback on a fairly consistent basis that I was not a good team player, that I was uh, more of an individual contributor, a maverick of sorts, and that I was not participating as a collective manner. So I think it was both how do I help my clients, but also how do I heal myself? And those two contributed to my absolute fascination with the world of teams. And, and, and you know, I, I think that one of the things I've learned from you over the years, Alexander, is that, um, that we use the word team whenever we mean people working together, but it's a pretty loose term. Could you tell us a little bit more about what is a team? Give us a working definition. Sure. <clears throat> Excuse me. This is a question that I'm frequently asked, and it lives in, in, in two domains for me. So a, a simple definition that I like to use is that a team is a small group of people, and I'm going to say seven plus or minus two, <clears throat> excuse me, who work in collaboration and hold each other mutually accountable to achieve a common purpose and set of goals. So it's a small group. They work together, and they hold each other accountable to achieve purpose and goals. I think this is an important definition because what it points to is that Teams come together not for the sake of being a team or not because it's a good idea, but because they have something pretty significant to accomplish. There is a goal, there is a purpose, there is a mission, there is a direction they must take that by definition requires the collective talents of all and cannot be accomplished by the individual, by any one individual. And then what separates then teams from groups or working groups or leader-directed units is that the team must do real work together. There is a feeling called teamwork where you're, in cohesion, you're, you're cohesive working together, and it really is people rolling up their sleeves and getting it done together. That is a distinction. And as we'll talk later, we can talk about the role of the leader in those different forms, but that's the essence of what I call a team. Thank you very much. I think that's very helpful. And, and you know, as you were saying it, I noticed how much you were emphasizing each of the elements of that definition. And I think, you know, for those who are listening, that definition alone might give you a starting point for thinking about the groups that you're working with and whether or not they're really a team. Um, Alexander, tell us more about um, about the nature of your work. I think, you know, I'm, I am your colleague at Georgetown where you teach in both the Transformational Leadership Program and also the um, leadership coaching program, and have been doing so for more than a decade. I'd love it if you could, for the sake of our audience, talk a little bit more about you know, this work that you do going in to work with teams. And what I'm wondering about is, um, you know, when do people call you and why? What kinds of problems do you see? Okay, let's, let's start there. So... The work that, I, that I'm known for and my colleagues are known for is what I would call a customized approach to helping a team grow and develop such that it can achieve um, a significant project, program, or initiative. And that's important because teams or organizations call me when they want us to spend time and we can talk more about the steps we take, but 
spend time with the team over, over a certain duration to help them develop, grow, become much more effective, but it's in service to a real organizational or business challenge. So there are teams typically that are facing something significant. It could be a merger, an acquisition, a turnaround, a restructuring, low employee morale, and the team, the organization knows that the team must step up to accomplish this, and the team itself is not ready for it, is not set up for it, or is not behaving or working in a way that's commensurate with the challenge that they're facing. And the organization knows that they need more than a team-building event. They need more than a training. They actually need something live, in the moment, real-time, over time, that's going to help this team build a sustainable change in capacity and capability to meet and achieve the challenge. So then when you come in and you uh, begin to work with a team, what are the kinds of things that you're looking for? As you, you know, what are the kinds of things that, um, that you often find? Right. So the, the challenges that I see with teams can be broken out into to four basic buckets. And, I'll, I'll, and, and I'll, we'll talk about these one by one. The first piece is so many teams lack direction. They are, they've either been around for a while or they're new, but they don't really have a clear sense of purpose or a clear sense of precise, measurable goals. In other words, they don't exactly know what they're supposed to be doing, why they're there, what they're trying to accomplish. The idea of common purpose and performance goals is so critical because it is those two ideas that galvanizes and brings teams together, even if they've been there for a while. So you take the example of a long-standing management or senior leadership team who have forgotten exactly why it is they are a team, and they've devolved more into a working group who come together once in a while to share what each one is doing, but they've lost a sense of purpose. Matched into that first piece is roles, absent purpose and goals, then oftentimes members don't know what they're doing, what their contribution is, what role they should be playing, what they're trying to do for the team. That's a first set of issues that I see as prominent. The second set of issues has to do with the world of collaboration where managing meetings, decision-making, problem-solving, managing conflicts, how do we work together? What are the tools and practices and methods that are really useful in teams? And what I find here is that many teams actually employ individual types of work practices to run teams. Leaders bring in the tools they use to manage individuals into a collective setting, and there really is no knowledge of collaborative tools. The third challenge I find is around mutual accountability. The idea that we own and are committed to this together, and we're in this together, that when we fail, we fail together. When we win, we win together, and it's not a blame game or it's me versus you, it's together. And there are no real, there are very few human resource systems which drive that behavior, so it has to be something that's built into the purpose and the goals. And the final one, Kate, has to do with good old-fashioned relationships and group dynamics. I find that so many people um, have interpersonal issues or relationship issues, and they don't have the tools to learn how to give each other real-time feedback or to express their concerns or to manage their conflict or relationship issues. So Instead of managing them, they withhold them. That corrodes, and we have relationship breakdown. 
Well, it all sounds um, important, and it all sounds familiar. <laughs> I'm sure people <laughs> listening are thinking the same thing. Um, and and so, you know, we talked about sort of how do you, you know, what are the common issues? What do you, how do you step in? And or not even, we haven't talked about how you step in, but you know, what do you see when you are called to help? And um, I wanted before we dive into that, I'd love to talk for a moment more about the idea the concept of teamwork as a vital 21st century leadership um, strategy. And one of the things we talk about quite a lot at, at the Institute for Transformational Leadership is how do we meet the challenges of the day? And mm. as I mentioned in, in, in the opening, um, working in teams is very much a strategy that organizations are leaning on. Um, and yet, like so much of leadership development, um, there's not really a place where you go to learn how to be a good participant on a team or how to be what even what a team really is. You know, I'd love to just hear your take on why you think teamwork is so important and, and uh, particularly how you think it's being used in organizations today. That's a, that's a great question. Let me give you some, some, some thoughts on that. I think teamwork has, um, has always been present. I, I, I don't think it's a particularly new idea or modern idea. I think it's been around for a long time. I think it's just becoming formalized today, more codified, and more important. Now, why more important? Uh, I'll give you some reasons. One, today's organizations are more broadly connected. We are connected to a much broader spectrum of partners and alliances and customers, and even within our own organizations to a broader geographic range. Our supply chains span the world. We find ourselves in more, of a cons- more consistently now working with people who we're outsourcing to in India with partners in China and with associates in, in Europe, and we're on Skype calls and phone calls, and we have to work together to achieve our outcomes. So we're more broadly connected. Two, things are accelerating. It's a much faster world and this, this acceleration means we need to do what we used to do much quicker, whether we're developing products, we're delivering services, we're manufacturing, we're, we're, we're going against the competition, and we're looking for programs to, to implement. It's fast. And the old siloed mentality doesn't work in a world where we need to be quicker. The other piece, I think, is that hierarchy in general is being challenged. The idea of flatter organizations and the idea that within hierarchy, leader, this idea of the sole leader running organizations is giving way to leadership as a collective act. Less hierarchy, broader collective leadership means we have to learn how to work together. And I'll finish by saying that, you know, this, this, this acronym of VUCA, a role that is volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous, those four words which are present in many organizations today drive business and organizational environments, which by definition cannot be resolved by a single person. We, we must come together, use the collective wisdom of our organizations to face these VUCA environments and be able to be competitive or even in some cases just to survive. Thank you. And, and, I, and I appreciate your, um, the distinctions that you've just given us. You know, we're going to be taking a break in a few minutes, but before we do that, I, I, would, love to, um, I would love to just hear you talk a little bit about, um, maybe just give us a, a couple of examples or an example of um, a kind of team that you've helped 
you know, just a short story. We have a couple minutes. Hmm. Let me see. Uh, let me pick a good one here. Um, so I helped a team in West Africa that was a part of a, of a fairly well-known NGO. And this was a team that was working in the West African region, coming from different affiliates within the NGO to come together in the region and run the region collectively. And they were working towards creating joint analyses and strategies to run the region together from a common mindset. So think of, think of a large NGO with multiple affiliates sending their representatives to the region to work together to have a common strategy for the region. And this team came together to try to do that, but unfortunately the home affiliates had different strategies themselves that they wanted to employ in the region. So this team was stuck between wanting to do something collective, it's a collective strategy for all the different countries, yet they had very different agendas. And what ended up happening in the meetings they had every three months is that the meetings were paralyzed because these team members were stuck between what the home affiliates wanted, their personal agendas, home agendas, and what the region wanted was more of a collective viewpoint. And so the work that they had to do was to speak the truth about that conflict within themselves, learn how to speak that truth, understand that they had to come together to create this joint strategy for the region, and then learn how to go back to their home affiliates and push back, push back in the appropriate way so that the home affiliates would let go of their personal agendas and let that team have the wisdom and the power and the control necessary to implement what they collectively thought was right, which was different than what the individual home affiliates thought was right. And that was about a year's worth of work to help them achieve that end. Thank you for telling us about that. And uh, we have just a minute left. Did they, did they do it? They did it to some degree. They managed to have the open conversations. They managed to share and create strategies. But in the end, the home affiliate needs um, at some level trumped the group needs. And so in terms of implementing the joint strategies, only a partial set was ever implemented, and other pieces never did get implemented because of the paralysis caused by those competing agendas. So it was a, it was a yeah. partial win, I would say. Yeah, you know, that's a, it's a great example because I think we work so hard you know, toward the total win, and we often do end up with a partial win, and I think that's a pragmatic and realistic example. Um, Mike, for those who are listening, this is um, Inside Transformational Leadership. I'm Kate Ebner, and my guest today is Alexander Kaye. We're talking about teams, and when we come back from the break, we're going to dig in and talk more about understanding how teams actually work. We'll be right back. Stocks, bonds, investment opportunities, financial news, and talk. We can help. Call us now toll-free, 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Founded in 2012, the Institute for Transformational Leadership, ITL, is an international center for inquiry experiential education, and research about leadership in the 21st century. 
Our mission is to develop worldwide communities of transformational leaders and leadership coaches who are dedicated to engaging and providing the leadership needed for a more sustainable and compassionate future. We currently offer two cohort-based certificate programs, the ICF Accredited Certificate in Leadership Coaching and the Executive Certificate in Transformational Leadership. We also offer a range of ICF Certified Advanced Coach Education Master Courses for experienced leadership coaches. For more information about our programs and how to apply, visit scs.georgetown.edu forward slash ITL. Email ITLprograms at georgetown.edu or call 202-687-7000. Up-to-date business and financial news. Call now and get the financial information you need. 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. The experts are here. Voice America Business Network. listening to Inside Transformational Leadership, produced by Georgetown University's Institute for Transformational Leadership. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please send an email to itlprograms at georgetown.edu. Here again is your host, Kate Ebner. Welcome back. Once again, my guest today is Alexander Kaye. He teaches at the Institute for Transformational Leadership in both the Transformational Leadership Program and the coaching program. He is the founder of a company called Carentis, which really helps people working with teams to have those teams work well. Um, Alexander's been doing this for a very long time, and I think the distinctions that he has to offer us about teams and how teams work and how to help your team work better can be very, very useful to anyone who is working that way in the world, and that's most of us, I think. Alexander, before the break, we talked a little bit about an example of a team that you worked with that um, sounds like they had a really big challenge. They worked very hard. They had partial success. Um, I think it might be useful to actually dig in a little bit into understanding more about the work of teams and how they actually come together to, to, um, to form and, and ultimately to deliver, hopefully, you know, performance, partial if not full. So let's talk about how teams work. Um, tell us about the stages of team development. Yeah, sure. So l- let's go to the, the very well-known Bruce Tuckman model of forming, storming, norming, and performing. There have been so many variations of that that have been created since, but I think it's a useful traditional architecture to understand it, and then we're going to play around with it a little bit. So... Bruce Tugman did this work in the 1950s, I believe, observing military teams, and in doing so, he observed that there were some very consistent phases of development teams went through. This has been debated, by the way, and we won't be here to debate it today, but in the beginning, he said, and we say today, and I believe, that teams form. They come together. They, they, there's sort of a birthing process of coming together, understanding what are the goals, what's the purpose, what's the mission, what are our roles, and this chartering process which launches the team. And if the team has a bit of um, subtlety to it, it'll also be about learning who we are and learning who the members are, etc. And so the team takes off and starts to work. And then what he noticed and what we notice today, and, and also I believe, is that then 
at some point teams run into trouble. There's some uncertainty that occurs. There's, call it storming, some breakdowns, there are some issues, there's too much work, there's not enough structure, things aren't happening the way they were supposed to, it's taking too much time, and the process feels a bit chaotic. The leader may not be you know, using his or her role in the proper manner, decision-making breaks down, etc. And that storming phase, phase of uncertainty, can last a long time, and it can actually kill teams. There are plenty of teams who've died on the vine because they never got through storming, or they've painfully stayed in it for years. Interestingly, storming should lead and could lead to a process called norming, also known as leveling, where the team realizes it's time to put in some processes, some practices, and some methods, and some protocols to get ourselves out of this mess. And the processes, the methods, and the practices, and the protocols are around how we're going to run our meetings, how we're going to make decisions, how we're going to plan our time, also how we're going to talk to each other and give feedback so they're both on the relationship side and the work side. And if norming goes well, then the team may perform and enter into a great period of performance and production and output. And that's wonderful. And that's where Tuckman left it for many years, forming, storming, norming, performing. But later, two other phases were added, and I think these are really important. The first phase was dorming that came after performing, and after dorming was transforming. And why I believe they're important is because it's actually in dorming that I'm frequently called. Dorming Mm -hmm. is the idea that once you've performed for a while, we get complacent, we stagnate, we go into groupthink, we lose the discipline, we rest on our laurels, and the team enters into a a period of confusion, not so much chaos, but distraction, and stagnates. And Dorming is, can, be, can be dangerous because if it's not fixed, the team can lose its innovative power, its creativity, its ability to, to create. <clears throat> Excuse me, Kate. Which means it has to go into transforming, which is it has to revitalize itself. And it has to either revitalize itself or go away. And the revitalization process is important because repurposing it, regoling it, reforming it can give it that energy boost to bring it back into the life cycles and give it what it needed to get out of that very stagnant phase. So think of it as forming, storming, norming, performing, dorming, transforming. Also understand that those aren't linear. You could be performing, your budget is cut, you're back to storming. You could be norming, two members leave, two come on, you're back to forming. It's, um, it's a very malleable model, which is definitely not linear. And, and um, why, why do you think we sh- need to understand team stage development? What is, how does it help us? Well, I think it, it helps my clients, and it's helped me personally in two ways. The first is that by understanding them, teams can realize that they're not abnormal, that there's this observable, this observable, consistent set of phases that teams, most teams go through, and it can create a sense of relief that, oh, we're not crazy, we're not abnormal, most teams go through this. And secondly, if you know what phase you're in, you know what you might need to do to get to the next phase, because there are very clear methods and practices to get from one phase to the other. So one, it's okay, Relief, two, is roadmap on how to progress. And, you know, it's, it, it sounds very orienting, actually, you know, to be like, okay, here's where we are, here's where we aren't. Um, 
I'm struck by the dorming stage and the, what you, your comment about sort of that's often when you get called. I want to link that back to one of the things you said in the first segment about um, teams need a clear sense of purpose and accountability. Um, when you're reforming, because you're at the dorming stage, uh, is it about reconnecting to that purpose? I mean, what is it, what's involved in, in reforming? Well, I'll give you a concrete example, one of my favorite, which was um, a large consumer products company that is very well known in the Midwest that had created a large shared services center filled with many, many teams. And these teams were all transaction processing teams. They were self-directed. And so they spent, and this was a finance organization, so they would spend their year running accounts payable, accounts receivable, general accounting, what have you. And these were teams that were self-directed. They ran really well. And every year they would set a new purpose, a new set of goals, which had to do with reducing a certain amount of costs, improving customer retention, excuse me, customer satisfaction, improving quality, what have you. And what they found is that by the time the year ended, those goals and that purpose would tend to become stagnant. So what they did, and this is led by a man named John, is every year in January he would ask the teams to repurpose themselves and regoal themselves with not just a new set of goals with metrics and indicators, but what's your purpose? What's your deeper underlying mission here in the center as a team? And what we found it was almost like an accelerator of sorts it would bring the team together to think about what are we going to do this year? And it became that every quarter the teams would check in with their purpose and their goals and they would either, and they would check their progress to those. And based upon that progress, they would either either continue down their path or they would evolve or boost that purpose and goals. It's a very important part of teaming and most teams miss it. Thank you for that. I think that's, that's very helpful. Um, so, so teams are forming and storming and performing and dorming and transforming and redoing it all and back and forth, you know, um, let's talk for a moment about the, the forming stage and when people come together to do work on, on a team, what are some good things that they can do to basically set themselves up? to be successful as a team? Yeah, that's another good question. Let's, let's break that, let's break the answer to that question into two categories, uh, two very well-known categories in the world of teams and groups. One category we're going to call task or work, and one category we're going to call relationship or maintenance. So task and maintenance are two very well-known dimensions in this field. From a task or work perspective, what can a team do in forming is one, build that common purpose. And if it's a real team, they're going to build it collectively. If it's handed to the team by the leader, it's probably more of a working group or a leader-directed unit. So build a common purpose and get very clear about the goals, the deliverables, or the outcomes, and stretch them. Make it so that the team is not only clear about what they're trying to do, but they realize it's a stretch or it's significant. Then is to get clear about the roles on the team, who's doing what, and not just the, the expert roles or the official roles, but the other roles. Who's going to help us facilitate? Who's going to help us manage the social architecture of the team so it's the formal and the informal roles? And the next thing is good old-fashioned planning. How do we plan to work together, and let's put in some good tools that we can use to go forward, how we're going to run our meetings, how we're going to make decisions, et cetera. 
That's the task work side. Unfortunately, this is where a lot of teams stop. There's a relationship maintenance side, which is what about the people on the team? So there we go to this old acronym called I-4, I being the letter I-4, which are the four big I's that individuals walk into into a new team or group. And the I's are identity, integration, influence, and individual goals. The key there is that when we walk into new groups or into new teams, many of us are very self-focused. We're more focused on ourselves in our relationship vis-a-vis the new team or group than the actual work. And this is, this is a wisdom that Edgar Schein delivered to us years ago. Identity, who am I? Do they know who I am? Do they care about who I am? Do they understand my track record and my history? Integration, do I belong here? Do they want me here? Can I make a contribution? Influence, who makes the decisions? How much power and authority do I have? What are my decision rights? And individual goals, can I still get my needs, my needs met while still being on this team? Those four eyes can be resolved by exploring each other's backgrounds, understanding who we are, sharing with each other what our work boundaries are, what our needs are, and getting very clear about the decision rights and the authority parameters on the team. Those four eyes, the maintenance relationship, when coupled with the work piece, I think produce a very powerful forming phase. You know, it's, I, I'm glad you broke that out um, to really look at um, the task side and we'll call it the relationship side. And, you know, I certainly agree with you in the work that, that I do and that we see at the Institute. So often the, the relational side of things is shortchanged and then people don't actually come together in the way that they need to to do the, the challenging thing they're trying to do. Um, is there anything else about understanding stages that you think would be helpful, Alexander, to talk about before we, we, we move on to other related topics? Um, let me think. Yeah, I mean, I, I think what we have to understand, I, 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 let me take a step back. For me, the, the stages of development, um, brought me closer to an understanding of the organic nature of a team. I oftentimes use in, in, my, in my workshops or work with teams, I say, how many of you are in a significant relationship? Most people raise their hands, they're married, they're engaged, they have a boyfriend, girlfriend. And I'll say, how do these stages relate to your relationship? And people get a laugh out of it because, you know, there was the forming, there was the storming, then you found the way you're going to live together or be together, then you had great moments, and then you kind of, you know, you dormed. And most people will say, my goodness, you know, this, this, does match, this does match what I have experienced in my own personal relationships, which means that teams are organic. I, I sometimes think that we see teams as this mechanical, technical unit, and yet it's a very human, very human entity. It moves, it grows, it's organic, it develops, it, it shifts. And leaders, team leaders, must understand that. The teams aren't just this, 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 this cog in a wheel that you can technically drive. You have to manage the human dynamic at a very important level. And if you know how to do that, you're going to get the best out of it. You know, I sometimes have um, also get a call when teams are storming. <laughs> and the question on the table is, you know, can this team 
survive? You know, can they, can they norm? Can they perform? And last year I, I worked with a team, Alex, that I, I ended up concluding that, no, they, they, they weren't going to move past storming. And um, it was probably the first time I've ever um, delivered that message to a group. But I, <laughs> I wonder about that, that particular stage, you know, when teams are storming, what does it look like and what needs to be done? So I'm actually glad you brought this up. Uh, so storming has, has, has um, myriad forms. To, to keep it simple, what you find in storming is that what seemed to be going well is no longer going well. And you get, a, you, you, you get uncertainty, you get some breakdowns, you get people who um, seem to be discontent, or there is discontent, excuse me. There's this sort of uh, subversive conflict People aren't happy. There's grumbling. People are reactive, intense. And, and what you sense is, you know, what's going on? Like, why, why can't we get stuff done? It is, it is a phase where you realize that the team itself did not get its ducks in a row or did not get the practices and methods necessary to do its job, and it becomes overwhelming. The other thing is, is that if those four eyes of identity, influence, integration, and individual goals was not properly managed, People can still be in a phase of they don't know who I am, they don't care who I am, I don't know what I'm doing here, I don't know what my contribution is. So those four eyes are lingering and they're festering, and it adds to the overwhelm felt by a lack of planning and structure. What I find is fascinating about this is that oftentimes the solution is let's go do some team building, which is analogies and roles, or it's let's put more structure, when actually... What's needed is that people need to just be able to speak their truth. They need to give the team feedback. They need to vent. They need to express their dismay, their uncertainty, their, mis- their, their, um, their um, discomfort. And we don't teach people how to do that. So in the absence of a way to do it, they hold it within. It corrodes, and it further deepens the difficulties in storming. So I have often found that the solutions don't lie in more structure or planning, but they lie in teaching people how to have difficult conversations and to speak their truth in a safe and constructive manner. That's great. Thank you for that. We're going to take a break right now. Um, I'm I'm delighted that we have one more segment, Alexander, so we can really talk about uh, performing and how how to get to the place where teams are working well together. This is Kate Ebner. You're listening to Inside Transformational Leadership. My guest, Alexander Kaye, teaches at Georgetown and is giving us some really important distinctions. We'll be right back. markets up or down or if you're looking to improve your portfolio our experts are ready to talk to you call now toll free 866-472-5790 that's 866-472-5790 voice america business network founded in 2012 the institute for transformational leadership itl is an international center for inquiry, experiential education, and research about leadership in the 21st century. Our mission is to develop worldwide communities of transformational leaders and leadership coaches who are dedicated to engaging and providing the leadership needed for a more sustainable and compassionate future. 
We currently offer two cohort-based certificate programs, the ICF Accredited Certificate in Leadership Coaching and the Executive Certificate in Transformational Leadership. We also offer a range of ICF-certified Advanced Coach Education Master Courses for experienced leadership coaches. For more information about our programs and how to apply, visit scs.georgetown.edu forward slash ITL. Email ITLprograms at georgetown.edu or call 202-687-7000. Whether the market's up or down, or if you're looking to improve your portfolio, our experts are ready to talk to you. Call now, toll-free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Inside Transformational Leadership, produced by Georgetown University's Institute for Transformational Leadership. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please send an email to itlprograms at georgetown.edu. Here again is your host, Kate Ebner. I'm back once again with my guest, Alexander Caillé. And, you know, we, we wanted to look at this. We just were getting before the break into this um, topic of, you know, where teams struggle. And... Um, you know, what, my observation is that, you know, if those relational pieces aren't in place, if they haven't learned who's in the room and how to trust each other, you know, what's expected and, and clarified roles and all of, the, all of those things we've been talking about, things really can break down. Uh, one of the places where I see breakdown is, um, is, is actually in terms of decision-making. How will decisions be made? How are decisions made on, on a team? And Alex, I'd love to just jump in there and, and actually talk a little bit more about where teams struggle. And maybe we could specifically look at what teams need to understand about making decisions and moving from discussion into action, action into result. Yes. So this is a, this is a, a fascinating uh, topic. So many of the teams I work with focus on this idea of decision-making or this issue. Um, I think it goes without saying that decision-making is, is, can oftentimes be not clear, both in the ways we make decisions, but also in what decision-making is. So a couple of things to keep in mind. There's, <clears throat> in the world of decision-making, there's really four areas. One is, how do we make decisions? What are the steps we take from clarifying what the decision is and being really clear about that, making sure decision-makers are in the room, information's been sent ahead of time, to then picking decision modes and we'll talk about that in a moment, to then actually having decision-making conversations that are open and candid and exploratory, to then actually having a decision event when people decide, and then logging decisions in a decision log. And what you find in most teams is that oftentimes the decision being made is not clear, the mode is not clear, the conversations are stymied or they're not really open, uh, saying, you know, a decision is made either through silence or partial agreement and nothing's logged. And so teams suffer from repeating decisions, non-sustained decisions, and overall ineffectiveness. So having a, a proper process is one. The second is understanding modes. 
most teams don't know that there are four basic modes of decision-making, unanimity, consensus, democracy, and authority. And it's important for teams to decide which modes they're going to use for which decisions. And the interesting thing there is in today's teams, at least in the United States, is most default to this thing called consensus. And so they try to do consensus. I think most teams struggle with really knowing how to do proper consensus. And when consensus fails, there's no default. And so they default to one person making the decision through authority, and the question becomes, was it always authority? So is it faux consensus? So understanding the modes you're going to use, primary and secondary default modes, sticking to them, doing them well is important. And also understanding that Many teams are also okay if authority is run by the leader or if team members make authority-based decisions on their own. Not everything has to be consensus-based. Finally, I find that most teams, once they make decisions, there's no archiving or documenting of the decisions. So decision logs, which log decisions, put them in an Excel spreadsheet. What was the decision? Who made it? What was the date? What were the consequences? Logging decisions can ensure sustainability. So there's a whole there's a whole architecture around this, which is which, which can be used to really improve effectiveness. You know, it sounds like a lot of work, and I wonder if um, if you could say something about um, about how a team that understands its decision process and uses decision logs and some of the architecture you've been describing. You know, how, how, how are they different than a team that doesn't? Right. Good question. I look at one of the teams I'm working with right now, a, a large government contractor in Washington, D.C. This was a big issue for them, and it took them quite some time to get the hang of it. So in the olden days, they would come into a meeting, and the meetings were a little haphazard, a lot of PowerPoints, discussions, and then they'd get to the end of a session, and the leader would say, okay, so do we agree on this? Some people would say nothing. Some people would shrug. Some would say yes. He'd go, okay, agreed, and off they'd go. And then they'd come back two weeks later, and they'd revisit the decision, or people had forgotten, or it wasn't made. And in the meantime, people went off and did their own thing based upon their own interpretation of the decision. So there was misalignment, and the team did not appear as a leadership team to be together and focused. Today, when a topic is brought up in a meeting, ahead of time, they've written on the meeting, decision to be made. Things are prepared, the information is there, decision makers are there, and they'll call out, okay, we're going to go from consensus to authority. Consensus team, if we don't make it, it'll be, you know, the leader who will make it. So they try for consensus, and there's a process they use, real consensus. If it fails, the leader makes a decision. It's clear, it's articulated, people say yes, people say no, they verbalize it, it's then logged on a screen, and there it is. And what they have found, and this is their testimonials, is that they don't revisit decisions anymore. And when they walk out of the room, they're clear about what they're going to do. And they stay aligned. And in the organization, there's been this rumor that the team seems more together, that decisions are being made, that there's a lack of misalignment and confusing signals sent by the various members. And what they're finding is that they waste less time because they spend less time revisiting decisions they've made or tried to make a dozen times. Maybe that's exaggerated, but at least two or three times. Thank you for the example. I think that really helps um, illuminate the, the way this work pays off, you know, and 
you know, I, I think you, you know, as you caught my attention a minute ago when you said, you know, decisions are made and then nobody remembers them or they, they all sort of drift off after the meeting and, and so on. And I think that brings me to this topic of accountability. You know, what does it look like when a team's really holding themselves accountable? Well, I go back to the beginning of our conversation. This is where I fell down. I'd forget decisions, and I was not mutually accountable. So this was a very steep learning curve for me, which I had to learn through painful feedback. So th- this is an important topic, and, it, and it's big. Um, I, I've always said, and I go to Patrick Lencioni's work around the five dysfunctions of a team and his the supreme importance he places on trust. I totally agree with that. A team, a team of people coming together to achieve purpose and goals must be masterful in the art of promise-making and promise-keeping. That builds the trust required for the team to progress. When we make commitments to each other, either to take an action, to follow up on something, to deliver whatever it is, we state ourselves as accountable to others in the team to do it. It's a promise. And it is so important for us to keep those promises, or if we can't keep them, to proactively renegotiate those promises that team members know. What doesn't work is not delivering, not fulfilling, and not saying anything about it, and worse, not cleaning it up. One thing is not doing it. The other is not even cleaning it up or addressing it. The minute we break a promise and it's not addressed or swept under the rug is the minute trust breaks down and disrespect occurs. And it's that minute that we start to get issues in performance. So what I call mutual accountability, which is, Kate, you and I are on a team, and I say, Kate, I'll get that done, that promise to you as a team member is critical. And I know that you depend on it because others depend on it, and we're going to make sure it gets done. And if it doesn't get done, you're going to follow up with me, and you're going to ask me what happened, but you're also going to ask me what happened in the team or with me, Alex, that this happened to you. That mutual accountability, that questioning is the essence of teamwork. We've got, to, we've got to explore why it's not working to make improvements. If not, we breed or we sow the seeds of disrespect and lack of performance. Mm. And, you know, I'm back in my mind to the point you made earlier about how important it is to basically learn how to have difficult conversations and you know, to be able to say what you're noticing, what you're concerned about, um, to ask for what you need, to call out where there's breakdowns and have the um, stamina probably or the, um, the courage as a group to, to hear and receive that without shutting down or getting defensive or having it become a, a dysfunction. I'd love it if you could just share as a team coach a little bit about how, how do you work with teams to really help them develop these aptitudes? Sure. So... When I entered the world of, of, of team development many, many years ago, I noticed that the two avenues was one, team building, so you'd go do off-sites and games and analogies, and the other one was team training, which seemed to be dry theoretical sharing. And I kept working with these teams, realizing, what are we doing in the moment? Like, why aren't we doing something now as the team's really working? Why are we going off-site to run analogies or games? And so back in those days, I developed the concept of team coaching, which is what Corentis is, is known for and what I'm known for. We call it the killer app of team development. And what it basically is is 
once we go in and, and, and meet the team and we diagnose and we do interviews, we come away with an understanding of what are the task issues and relationship issues they want to work with. Then the team decides what it wants to do for three to 12 months. And then we use some consulting, some facilitation, some training, and some coaching to help them. So let's say decision-making, you know, we can teach them what other companies do with decision-making. That's consulting. We can train them on decision-making tools. We can actually take them through it as facilitators. But the most powerful work we do is we sit there and we observe and we notice them as they're trying to make a decision. And from a coaching modality, we say, stop. What are you noticing about the way you're working now? Real time, real work. And that intervention, we call it a move, a coaching move, leaves such an imprint because in the moment they have to take a look, self-diagnose and go, you know, we're not doing it. And I'll say, well, what's going on? And the wisdom of the team shows up. And I'll say, what do you want to do about it? And team self-correct. That self-corrective faculty that most collectives have allows them to make their own change in the moment and own self-correction, and that leads to better performance. And it's sustainable versus going off-site and role-playing decision-making. You're actually doing it live. They make a correction. They make a decision. They go, holy cow, we just did it. That team coaching mode um, is, to me, the most powerful way to intervene as a team services provider. And, and um, what I'm loving about the way you described it is that this idea of the wisdom of the room, you know, you're helping people notice what's going on, talk about it in the moment, and, and course correct, to use your words. And so it sort of breaks down the, um, I don't know, the buildup of um, dread or, um, or issues <laughs> because it's, it's, a, it's happening in the moment. Is that right? It's totally right. And, and this is what I found over the years. When I first started to do this work, I was told, you're crazy. You can't do that. That's like group therapy. It's taboo. And I thought, well, it's not group therapy if we keep it to the present and move to the future. And if people just diagnose what's happening here and they put corrective action. And here's what I found. People don't know how to do this. It's not a muscle that many teams have. We keep it quiet. But the minute they're allowed to do it, this collective wisdom, this pent-up, unspoken understanding gets spoken. And I find, humbly speaking, that the wisdom of the teams, the wisdom of the group is, is overwhelmingly there. They know what's going on. They always have. They've just never been given a space and a way to voice it. They'll say it. Every time we get to a decision, we tend to do a tangent. Or every time we decide, we don't really decide. And, and they say it, and by virtue of saying it, they experience this rush of, whew. And because they spoke it, not me, they know exactly how to correct it. They may need help with a tool or a practice, which I can deliver to them. But they take it, they adapt it, and they do it, and they become self-sufficient. And I think that's the art. We want the teams to become self-sufficient as quickly as possible that they can manage their own growth and development and not rely on the consistent calling on a facilitator or consultant to, to bail them out or help them. Well said. I think that's a great, that's a great point to end. And we only have a, a few more seconds, actually, Alexander. And yet I know people who are listening will want to be able to sort of follow your work, read your blogs, um, know more about you. Where will you send them? So best place to go is 
to my website, which is www.currentus.com, C-O-R-E-N, as in Nancy, T-U-S, currentus.com, or by going to, just on Google, putting in my name, Alexander Kaye. There's quite a bit there, and people can read up on some of the things that I'm doing. But we're going to centralize everything to Currentus, so that's the best place to go, Kate. Thank you. Well, I want to say thank you, actually. It's been a really uh, rich and um, thoughtful conversation this morning, and I know it will be helpful to others. It certainly is helping me, actually, as I think about the teams that I'm a part of. So thank you for joining us. You're so welcome. Such a pleasure to, to be with you, Kate. Have a great week, Alexander. Thank you for joining us this week on Inside Transformational Leadership. Please tune in for another edition with your host, Kate Ebner, next Monday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our programs, please visit scs.georgetown.edu forward slash ITL. We'll talk again next week.